0: Before I begin, can you hear me in the back there? Great. Thank you. Before I fully immersed myself in the Theravada tradition, I was a monk in the Rinzai Zen tradition. And when I reflect back on it, it was probably the most intense six years of my life. It, it, it made a profound impact on my practice and, and ended up being the basis of uh, my understanding of the Dharma and the unfolding of this path. So it's significant. And tragically, also during that time, during those six years, the lack of sila or the lack of ethics and the unskillful, you could say the lack of sila, or the unskillful conduct of my teacher tore my heart. It really tore my heart apart, and basically the community as well, a tearing happening there, and it turned out to be yet another reminder of the importance of ethics. It also had a silver lining to it, something of benefit to me, because it also actually formed my love and my passion for Vipassana, for this tradition. Because of this missing link, at least the teacher I was practicing with, there wasn't this strong emphasis on ethics. And feeling over the years the importance of it in the unfolding of this this path. And maybe, maybe for some of you, your heart has also been torn in some way. And that tearing, being tragic on some manner, might also have a silver lining of it has brought you closer to this path, to this spiritual unfolding. And you probably know from that also the importance of the ethical life and, and the beauty that comes from that. I actually think it was the same for the Buddha as well. In the Sutta Napata, there's a, a chapter uh, called the Attakavaga Sutta, and, uh, the Attakavaga chapter, and it's thought to be one of the earliest parts of the Pali Canon, and in that we get this story of the Buddha, the beginnings of his path that is different than the story that comes actually later on in the tradition of him being in this palace and then seeing sickness, old age, and death, and the renunciate as a beginning of his path. And in this, what I'm going to be sharing with you, we get to see that he sees or witnesses something different as the beginning of a spiritual path. And it begins, fear is born from arming oneself. Fear is born when we bring up arms, sticks, and swords. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over, seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I long to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and instead settles down. Striking, don't you think, this really, in some ways, this story and this, this other description of the unfolding of this path. I feel in this that the, the Buddha, too, had a heart that was torn apart. And in particular, he names it, right, the fear that he felt around the violence and the harm that he was seeing. And how he felt lost in such a situation. And, and then finding the thorn, the thorn that's in the heart that when we take it out, there is freedom. The thorn of craving or the thorn of greed, hatred, and delusion. Tonight what I want to do is I want to share with you some reflections on the importance of ethics on this path, the importance of the Pali word sila, ethical conduct. And the reason is because I, I want to remind you that that's, that's part of your retreat here. That is what we're, we're doing here. That's part of what we're engaged in. This isn't just a mindfulness retreat. This is a retreat about the entirety of the path. And you might remember on the first night, uh, Bonte introduced us to the five precepts. And in the next couple of days, there'll be an opportunity to take the, the eight precepts as well for those of you who are interested in that. And you could say this intention in those five trainings, those five guidelines, is this aspect of not harming, not harming others and not, not even harming oneself. And in particular, what I want to share with you is how ethics, how sila is is a foundation for this meditation that we're exploring here. So an overlay. So I'm not going to be going over into the details of each of these five precepts, but more what we can learn from the value of ethics. And then oppositely, how our meditation, how this process that we're involved in informs the ethical life. And you can say you can see it in in the way the Buddha taught in the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm sure many of you know that one way the Noble Eightfold Path is divided is in these three parts, sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila, ethical conduct, in this variation is, is a beginning. It's the foundation. Samadhi, in this context, it could be seen as these factors in the Eightfold Path of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. What, what's being cultivated here? And then panya, wisdom. And in some ways, these are these are a spiral that move around and around where sealer ethics informs or is the foundation for samadhi and panya. But those also inform our ethical conduct as well. And I want to point out that I feel that ethics was extremely important for the Buddha. One way of framing the kind of person he was was an ethicist. He comes back to ethics again and again. For example, he describes this path in a way that you could say attempts to undermine a social structure that creates oppression. When you reflect on his idea about nobility, you you might know that nobility in the Buddhist time, what was it based on? It was based on one's birth. You were noble depending on what family you were born into and where your family landed in that social structure. And that nobility around birth allowed a kind of systemic oppression to continue. And he undermined that, didn't he? To have a sense of nobility, to be a noble that is dependent upon one's spiritual maturity. I feel he did this intentionally to disrupt a system of oppression because of his sense of ethics, because of his sensitivity to the harm that happens in this world. And I guess I want to begin by reminding you what a cool and precious thing that we have going on here, this retreat. Just in that context, that here you are in this community where you're surrounded by people who have the same value, the value of, um, of non-harming, the value of actually taking on these trainings of these five guidelines. Can you imagine living in a society where everyone was following just those five guidelines? Wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, whole economic systems probably would have to change so that we can all follow that. I want to point this out because this can be overlooked when we're on retreat. In some ways, when you're here, just that, having this intention of not to harm in these ways, we're creating the society that we want to see in this world. And I find when I'm on retreat, it's something I forget. I forget to take this in. What a, a, a beautiful thing that I'm involved in. And following these five precepts. I guarantee you, if that was the only thing that you were to do on this retreat, was to explore these five trainings, your retreat would be incredibly transformative. I mean, I think it's great that you're meditating and <laughs> cultivating these other aspects. It's a good thing. But let's not forget the transformative quality of, of, of ethics as well. and to take it in. A few years ago, I, was, I had a, a gratitude buddy where we would uh, share our gratitudes uh, with one another every day. And most days, I think almost every day, he would, he would say, um, I'm, I'm so grateful that today I did not intentionally harm anyone which at first I thought was, I have to be honest, kind of (laughs) weird. It wasn't like I was kind to the cashier or (laughs) I picked up a piece of trash. It was this absence. And then when I started to reflect on it, I I thought, wow, there's something really beautiful about that. When When I take it in the context of the world that I live in, In that context, it's pretty profound. One more person not harming. Can you take that in, the importance of that in terms of the world that we live in today? And I also I want to mention this in the context of, of this broader frame that this fits into. And this is noticing not only when we're, we have the sense of non-harming, but any wholesome state that's arising in your practice here. If you're like me, what I notice often with this, this mind here is that it is so good at noticing the things that aren't working. It's actually pretty good at noticing all the unwholesome states of mind that arise. It's gotten really good at noticing aversion but it can miss the beautiful qualities of heart that actually are arising. They can even arise, for those of you who are starting in part two, at the beginning there's subtle calm and a, a bit of stability that's arising at times. A bit of kindness or compassion arises as you're milling around with others. There's that seed and if it goes unnoticed, then it doesn't get watered so that it can grow. And the cool thing about these wholesome qualities of heart is that's all they need is they simply need to be noticed, noticed with this quality of of savoring. So I invite you to be sensitive to that. What are the wholesome states of mind and heart that arise during your day here? And I think for me, that's one of the things I love about just walking into this room, is the ethical quality of this room, also in the context of the world that we're living in. I think it's a beautiful thing that you're engaged in here. So I wanna go a little bit deeper with this. The, the importance of ethics, which I just explained, but now as it, a, as it is a foundation and then how, how your meditation can be a foundation for deepening an ethical life. And I'd like to uh, begin by giving a frame for what I'm going to be sharing with you. And I'm going to be using a kind of poetic language. I want to use the end of a, of a poem by W.S. Marin to, to frame it. And I just want to name one of the things that you're going to hear up here is that here are all these teachers here, and you're going to get these different frames or different stories, and some are going to resonate with you, and others are not. And that's I think the beauty of of team teaching is you get all these different voices um, of all of all us teachers here. And I also want to name um, Oren too. Oren has this title of assistant, but I know Oren, and it. Uh, he's actually done quite a bit of teaching, and, and I'm I'm actually grateful that he's here, <laughs> and that you will be able to get to hear from him as well. So this is uh, from a, a a poem by W. S. Marin called "A River of Bees," and it's it's a dream, and it's it, in in this dream really is the unfolding of this journey, remembering how. Greg framed that last night of of us being on this journey. And you can say, in this dream, he's searching. He's trying to figure out how to navigate this activity of living and dying that we're all involved in. And in the dream, he's going from room to room. Trying to get a sense of this. And at the end of the poem he comes to this door and the last lines he says on the door it says what to do to survive but we were not born to survive only to live On the door, it says, what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. I think there's many levels that we can get a sense of possibly what he's trying to convey or what it conveys for us. One is just the simple fact of how true that is, right? Is, is um, that you weren't born to survive, right? That's, that's what we know for certain is all of us in this room are destined to die. We weren't born to survive. We were born to live, And I think for me, when I uh, think about these words and possibly what he's trying to convey, I feel that before this practice, I was probably involved merely in surviving. And all the signs that I were seeing on the doors were just telling me how to survive. And I was searching how to survive. I think for me, I think that's what I was looking for. Maybe I can survive through drugs. Maybe that will work. (laughs) It didn't turn out so well. Oh, if not that, maybe I'll try to figure out life and I'll read philosophy. That might have been worse. (laughs) 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 It was this impulse to survive. And I feel one of the things that I begin to taste in this practice, is that that can start to ease up this push to survive and to simply live, to simply be here, to to notice what's going on. To to use some of the the language that, that Greg used last night that I found so powerful is finding this true home, this true home of awareness. And I do want to point out, of course, surviving can be a beautiful frame for certain things. So I'm just taking it into the context of what Merwin is saying here. I think there can be something quite powerful about it. And and to live, to live, to me, is to live the ethical life. It's easier for me to really be connected with my heart and move in this world in an ethical way when I'm not in the grips or entangled by this mere survival my heart's there for another person. It's actually here for myself when I begin to step out of that dynamic. And I know that sometimes when I've come to retreat, sometimes there is this impulse of, am I going to be able to survive this? I remember the first time when I went to, uh, to Burma, I was, of course, nervous. And so I called up a friend of mine who had been there a number of times. And I said, what do I need to remember when I go to Burma? <laughs> and I think I was hoping that he was going to give me more survival instructions. Because <laughs> I was looking just to survive. And I appreciated what he said. He said, Brian, all you need to do is sit and then walk and then sit, and then walk, and then you might eat, and then you lie down. And you just need to be there for it, just to, to, to have the willingness to show up for it. That's it. I so appreciated that simple instruction because he was inviting me to step out of the mindset of survival. And to actually living, actually to be here for the experience, and to notice and to be aware of how experience unfolds. And full disclosure here, I want to be honest, I've had many days on retreat where. I'm just surviving, where, where my head is just a little bit above the water. So this has not been any kind of perfect endeavor by any means. But it's been a, a worthwhile endeavor. Here's our frame, to, to, um, that we were not born to survive, only to live, to step out of mere survival. And ethics being a foundation for this, for the practice that leads us to this. And I, what I want to point out is I feel like I learned something about the practice of meditation through the practice, practice of ethics. And that's specifically what I want to share with you. What do I learn from ethics? I learn what it's like to be involved in a training, Ethics, Buddha, Buddhist ethics, the, the, the reason I, I love the Buddha's perspective on ethics is, is because it's not a bunch of rules written in stone. It's actually a training. Like, if I, I don't know if some of you have your um, sheet with the, the precepts on it, and if you just look at the Pali for the first precept the, to uh, refrain from killing living beings, the first word, panatipata, pana, tipata, pana. Uh, similar to the Sanskrit prana, breathing, right? It's a breathing being. Atipata comes from uh, to destroy or to kill, so killing a living being. Whereatmani is to abstain. This next word, sika padang, it's an interesting word. Sika is, uh, is, comes from the sense of training or learning, this is very clearly, the Buddha did not say this is a rule, this is a training that you're involved in. Padang, that the second part of that word, it's uh, similar to ped, as in pedestrian, foot. This is a path, a path that, is, that we're treading, that we take steps on. A training that we're following. It's a learning process. And then samadhiyami, sama with diyami, I've been told, comes from it, it, its root is the same as um, uh, giving. And the adiyami is uh, to take upon oneself. It's a kind of gift to myself and a gift to others. This is, this is ethics, this is the, the, the ethical training. And the other thing I want to point out about this is in a training or like this, something I'm learning like a skill or an art, it doesn't fit into into the category of where my mind puts it, which is um, the the world of right and wrong. And I want to clarify this. For example, four plus four equals, like if you think about, if you do that, I know it's sometimes difficult on on a retreat to do math, four plus four. Sometimes it's difficult for me. (laughs) Equals eight. And if you didn't get eight, you got the wrong answer. Nine is wrong and seven is wrong and there's only one right answer and that's eight. Ethics doesn't work like that. Ethics is an art. It reminds me, uh, you can say in a past life I used to play a clarinet in a jazz band. And it wasn't like one day when we were playing, we got it wrong, and the other day we got it right. One day, we were, there was more fluidity. There was, you, could, you could hear the art of us creating something together, and it was really quite beautiful. And other days, eh, not so good, Our rhythm off a little bit, a little out of tune. But that doesn't really fit into right and wrong. It, it, it's, it's more varied than that. It's more nuanced, but maybe your mind is like my mind, that when I make some kind of mistake in terms of my speech or action, it's either I got it wrong, and then usually that can bleed into not only get it wrong, I must be a, um, there must be something wrong with me, and there's this whole creation of a self around that, or it could be the oversimplistic thing of I got it right. Do you hear how that narrows down the sense of training of being involved in an art? If our minds can find ethics in that way? This is a skill, it's a training. And if if it was only around ethics, maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but you might notice like my mind, it gets involved in our meditation as well. Oh, that's it. Oh, I think I got it wrong that time. Or I got it right. I, I point this out because some of you might be like me, and it's, a, it's, it's an important thing to be aware of, is this this oversimplistic way of thinking. And quite literally, that oversimplistic way of thinking is, is a thinking of mere um, survival. It's when I'm entangled in survival. Because I want to know immediately if I've gotten it right or wrong. And in terms of survival, that can be really helpful if I'm being chased by a mountain lion. I want to know if I'm going to go right or left. I don't want to think about nuances. So there is a place for that. But its place isn't in meditation or in ethics in order to learn those arts, those skills. And also, what comes with any kind of art, some of you might have been involved in some kind of visual art or music, or an art around movement, is that it also reminds me that learning an art is really messy. And I need to remember this around ethics so I can be really kind to myself. And when I get a sense of that when I'm practicing ethics and undergoing that training, then that can bleed over to remembering that in terms of my meditation practice and what I do on retreat. It can be so messy. And sometimes I remember my first retreats, it could be so confusing because the teachers would make it sound so simple and clear and this is how it's going to unfold or this is how you engage in it. It never felt that way to me. It was always messier than that. And I want to point out that's, that's the nature of learning a skill or an art. Also, what comes with training or a skill or an art when I'm involved in ethics is having a curiosity around my actions in the world, that that's the key to making it a learning experience rather than it being confined to right or wrong. And the same with meditation. Have you noticed when there's more curiosity, there's an aliveness to how it can unfold just with that one element? This is stepping out of the narrow, narrowness of mere surviving and into living. I guess one one more thing about it being a training and how we learn this from ethics and then it can inform our meditation is the repetition that's needed and, and the patience that's needed when learning an art. And I'd like to share with you a quote from another artist, Michael Jordan from the Chicago Bulls. Remember what an amazing basketball player he was? And it was interesting what he said about his uh, the unfolding of his career. And I think he's just talking about his professional career. This is before uh, he was play- uh, um, after he was playing college ball. He said, "He says I've missed more than nine thousand shots in my career. I've lost almost three hundred games. Twenty six times I've been trusted to take." the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. 9,000 shots missed. And the thing that really gets me, having thousands of people watch you, and somebody saying, you gotta make the winning shot and being in that crowd 26 times when you miss. I feel meditation can be like that in some kind of way. (laughs) Okay, at least mine, maybe you can relate to this. It's it's this persistence and patience. And of course I think in in the most subtle level we want to take it out of this frame of failure and a success but it's that that repetition that's needed of always coming back again and again and again, being willing to show up on the court like that. More traditionally, ethics or sila is seen as the foundation in terms of when I'm skilled at this training, there's gonna be a lot less that I regret, and when I regret less, my mind is steadier. There's a kind of stability that comes when there's, a, there's an ethical uprightness in my life. And I'm sure you know this, many of you, from this practice, how there can be an ease in the mind when you take ethics seriously, when you take the five precepts seriously. It allows for an ease, a stabilizing, an opening. And and, and sometimes I think that's part of the process of retreat is that sometimes we settle and, and part of my process was the messiness of navigating some of the things I regretted in my life. And it's the same process. It's simply being aware noticing that with kindness. How these states of mind can arise and pass away. I also want to point out that what you're doing here by simply following the five precepts creates a foundation in terms collectively, in terms of the community here. It's like we're creating a safe container for one another when we know that we're surrounded by such people. And the Buddha, in in uh, in one of his discourses, gives a beautiful image. Of this, which I really appreciate. And it's, it's a time where he goes, visit, goes and visits um, one of his monastics, the Venerable Anuruddha. And the Venerable Anuruddha is uh, living with the Venerable Nandia and, and Kambila. And he asks them, you know, so how, how are you getting along? How is life for all of you? And the way he asks it is very interesting. Are you living in concord with mutual appreciation? Are you living without disputing, blending like milk and water? Viewing each other with kindly eyes. I'm struck by this image of blending like milk and water that he gives for what comes from the ethical life of a community that upholds that. A community that can be saturated in a quality of kindness. Like blending of milk and water. What comes to me in my mind around that is that you have two different things blending. And I feel like this is what makes community work is the sense of difference and honoring difference and seeing the significance of difference. There can be sometimes a, a harmful state of mind is, the, is the, the sense of we're all the same. It can be incredibly harmful because it can perpetuate marginalization. So difference and yet it's blending. There's a quote from Howard Thurman that I feel speaks to this quality of blending like milk and water. Howard Thurman was was actually a, a significant spiritual advisor to Martin Luther King. And in 1944, he helped establish the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And what was significant about this church and remember, this is 1944. Is was, it was the first racially integrated and intercultural church in the United States. It's really a, a, a man um, in difficult times creating something very beautiful. And he says, "A person should know that for all human beings to be alike is the death of humankind." And yet also to perceive a harmony that transcends all diversities and in which diversity finds its richness and significance. A person should know that for all human beings to be alike is the death of humankind. And also to know, to perceive a harmony that transcends all diversities and in which diversity finds its richness and significance. transcending diversity and including it in all of its richness and its significance. Blending like milk and water. There's another piece to this story of of the Buddha visiting uh, the Venerable Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kambila. And the Venerable Anuruddha speaks further about how this is unfolding and specifically what they're doing. He says, Venerable Sir, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, but one in mind. I find this interesting what he does here of of putting aside what he wishes to do and is okay with doing what they wish to do. I want to point out here that, that I feel that this is not the unskillful practice that can come around this idea, the unskillful practice of dismissing our own needs and putting the needs of others before us in an unskillful way, in a harmful way to ourselves, and in the end, a harmful way to others but a way of being generous. How can this happen on retreat? I know one way I practice it is if someone is moving incredibly slowly in front of me and I want to be going faster, can I, can I slow down with, to that pace? Go as the pace that they wish to go. And oppositely, if I feel like there's a huge line behind me, or if I'm in the, um, the, the dining hall in the food line, and I'm taking food at a snail's pace, I might move a little bit more quickly because I, to do what others wish to do. Not that I have to rush in all of this, but I think it's a, a beautiful practice and can be a beautiful expression of, of kindness. Not a demand either way. But rather an exploration. Blending like milk and water, creating the society that we want to see in the world, and truly living. And I think most of you know this, actually, this is really, this next part is really just a reminder of how the practice that you're engaging in here nourishes is a foundation also for ethics, for sila, for the ethical life. How does it nourish? How does it inform an ethical life? We're really learning how to respond rather than react through, again, using Greg's Greg's language, through resting in this home of awareness, through noticing experience, gradually disentangling. Ajahn Chah puts this well. He gives a, a, a striking example of this practice in this manner. He says... For example, suppose at home you have a pet monkey. Monkeys don't stay still for long. They like to jump around and grab onto things. That's how monkeys are. Now you come to the monastery, you come to a retreat center like this, and you see the monkey here. This monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around just the same. But it doesn't bother you, does it? Why doesn't it bother you? Because you've raised a monkey before. You know what they're like. If you know just one monkey, no matter how many provinces you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them, will you? This is one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you understand monkeys, if you don't understand monkeys you might become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? When you see it reaching for this and that, you shout, you shout hey, you get angry. That damn monkey. This is one who doesn't know monkeys. <laughs> one who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey at the retreat center are just the same. Why should you get annoyed by them? When you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. Then you can be at peace. Can you see the monkey? Are you getting annoyed by the monkey? (laughs) Can you become the one who understands monkeys? Because that's opening up a different space, isn't it? When, when we start to let down, to set down the reactivity that we have towards those internal monkeys, a space opens up for a, 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 the ability to respond. And and I think what he says is really important. He says, if you know just one monkey, no matter how many provinces you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them because you understand monkeys so that we can respond to the the monkeys out there. This is opening the doorway to skillful action, to to compassion and kindness in action. It's taking this one seat, as Ajahn Shah says, the, the one seat, the one who knows, the one who's awake, that can see this and ceases to be bothered by such monkeys. some particular things that I find helpful to be sensitive to deepen my ethical life in terms of seeing, of taking the one seat, the one seat of the one who knows, the one who is awake. And that's in particularly noticing intention or volition and the states of mind that arise with intention. This is the key to Buddhist ethics, is noticing the intention that, that motivates Uh, body, speech, or mind that motivates action, that motivates our speech, that can even motivate thoughts. To get a sensitivity to this because this, I feel, opens up a doorway to, to, to skillful action and helps prevent blind reaction. And it can be around the simplest things. Like sometimes they'll ask me, you know, what's up with sitting down or standing up? (laughs) What's going on there? Just in the act of getting up from your seat, it can be such a rich arena to notice intention. There has to be intention in the mind for the arm to move. And often what helps me to become sensitive to that is first to be grounded in this world of sensation and then to get a sense of, the initiation of that, the precursor to movement, to get a sensitivity of intention beginning to well up to, to form and it forming into a, a movement of some sort. And not only that, the states of mind that impel these intentions. I, I find this really fascinating around discomfort. When I'm sitting sitting here and the urge to move arises, what's it like to simply be with that, to notice what's within that urge? There might be, of course, aversion there. Can you notice the aversion and the intention to move? And to simply sit with that. And the way I create a sense of curiosity around this is, is to allow some of these urges to happen before moving. Okay, the urge arises. There's aversion with it it subsides, it comes again a second time. Oh, I noticed that now it's stronger. Okay, I'm gonna hang out with this feeling of wanting to move. And then on the third time, I move. So that there's a space to be kind to my body if needed. And also what's important to me on this third time is, yes, there might be aversion still percolating in the mind, but there can also be the sense of, of um, prompting, prompting this quality of kindness or compassion. It can be such a fascinating realm to, exp- uh, to explore, the, the, the realm of intention and the states of mind, the qualities of mind that impel intention. Whether you're getting up from where you're sitting when you're sitting down, when you're moving around the retreat center, when you're eating, And again, it's not trying to catch it all the time. It's allowing the mind first to stabilize and having a sensitivity to this arena. Also within this arena, the other thing I want to name is also um, how this sentence, I am standing up or I am sitting down, can be so misleading. And I want to point this out because language actually shapes how we see the world. And then I'm always assuming, oh, there must be some person at the center of this intention. Is that really the case? When you check out your experience of simply move, of of any kind of movement? What's actually going on there? And... And intention, and noticing intention and qualities of mind that are there before movement can help dismantle this this um, belief that we have that there's some self that's at the center of making that happen. It can be very liberating to notice how intention arises and then movement arises from that. This is. The world of intention and it informs the ethical world because it it opens up the space of being clear about the intention that's there, the state of mind is, that's there before I act. To me, this is one of the most powerful uh, uh, things, especially around speaking. There's another aspect of intention that's really quite important as well, though, in terms of the practice that we're doing here. That also informs our ethical life. And that's the placing of intention. All of you here are placing probably all kinds of intentions during the day. Hopefully the intention for the willingness to be present. I like to use the phrase the willingness to be present rather than having the intention to be present. same the intention to be present. It doesn't happen often. But the willingness, oh, I just have to have the willingness to show up from my experience, just the willingness. And then the other causes and conditions will unfold. And having the willingness begins to gain momentum, especially on a long retreat. And what's needed in this skill, which you've probably noticed, is can you place such an intention without the complications of the expectations? It's amazing what I noticed about my mind on retreat is it, it, it feels like it knows how this path unfolds, and it really doesn't, and it can get tricked into these expectations of what should be happening. That pain should have gone away by now. I've been paying attention to it long enough, or that emotion. <laughs> I mean, that's why I want to pay attention to it, is because I've made this deal that if I pay attention to it, if I'm willing to show up, it needs to be willing to leave. <laughs> you ever, am I the only one that makes these deals? or that's <laughs> a little different than the simple willingness to be with what's arising. What gets hooked upon your, your intention around the willingness to be present? And, and when there's a refinement of placing intention without expectation, there can be a beautiful way of acting in the world. One example of this, <clears throat> a few months ago, the um, Thai forest monastic Ajahn Brahmahamso, <clears throat> who some of you might know, he has a, a monastery in Perth, Australia, was invited to go to Vietnam, to it was an international Buddhist conference, to give a talk, to present a paper. And so he accepted the invitation, which he was uh, quite excited about. And Of course, when he was going there, if you know anything about Ajahn Brahmahamso, there's usually one thing he loves to talk about, especially in these kinds of situations, especially if if there's going to be powers that be from uh, places like uh, uh, Thailand and Burma, and that's gender equality. He's a a big supporter of that. You might remember he... he, um, he got in a lot of trouble for fully ordaining uh, quite a few um, uh, women, which I think is is wonderful. And I, I guess I want to back up, and I, I do want to say just when I say gender equality, I, I I mean the whole spectrum. I think sometimes when we think about gender equality, we just think about men and women. That binary system can be so confining, and I just want to name that. We don't have to... Uh confine people to such, uh, such a simple understanding of what gender is. So gender equality is, is even broader than I think what Ajahn Brahm is doing and I think this is a great start. And so he goes to Vietnam. Of course, he's going to talk about gender equality and he gets to Vietnam for this international conference and when he gets there, they say to him, the organizers, sorry, you can't give your talk. We decided that we don't want you to talk here." He goes back to Australia, so he was silenced. He goes back to Australia, and everybody's asking him, weren't you upset and frustrated by what happened in Vietnam? And he said, of course I wasn't. <laughs> why, why would I be frustrated by that? This is how change happens. This is what happens when, when you try to push the envelope, is people are going to silence you, and they're going to say no to you. I don't get frustrated by that because I understand that that's how things unfold. He actually understands the monkey. And when he understands the monkey, it doesn't mean that he stops acting. It means that he continues, but he understands how change happens. This is what we can learn from our meditation is we place an intention and then whatever happens, happens, but we stick with that. And we understand how messy the unfolding can be. And of course, he also understood that probably four more people read his talk because it was a banned talk. (laughs) It was great PR, actually. (laughs) And he understood that. So may our ethics here... And the ethics that you're following here, and also the meditation that you're practicing here that informs the ethical life, may may it go uh, to serve the liberation of all beings. Let's sit for a minute here. Thank you for listening To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharmased, please visit dharmased. org slash donate